Just remembering where we are and what we are doing. As a matter of fact, let's just tee it up kind of geographically and in time. The Apostle Paul is here in Ephesus and the year is about 53 AD. He is writing this letter, the first one that we have to the church in Corinth. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first letter that we have that has come down to us. Paul was in Corinth for a long period of time, around 51 AD, and he, a lot of people became Christians, became Christ followers there when he was there. Some of them had been Jews and then became Christians. Some of them had been Gentiles or pagans and become Christians from all kinds of nationalities. Corinth was very, we've talked about what a cosmopolitan city it was, a trading center, etc. And so you see people coming into Christianity with a lot of different worldviews, very different ways of thinking. They were raised differently. They were taught different things in school. It's one of the things that makes this so relevant to us is each of us come to the gospel with worldviews, the way we've thought in our past. And that requires um, changing of our mind. Think Romans 12 too. You know, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, and for them and for us, it meant the pattern that you brought to Christianity, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so not only is this a regeneration, an old self has died and the new self walks in a new life, it's also a changing of attitudes, priorities, all the things of our mind as well. Well, needless to say, the Corinthian Christians were wrestling with this, and we do too. And so they had some questions for Paul. They also were doing some things they didn't have questions about, but Paul wanted to talk to them about it. And so we've called this series, When Christians Get It Wrong, not so much to be hard on the Corinthians, even though there's precious little that Paul says to commend them here. That doesn't necessarily mean that their faith in Christ was flagging. What it meant was is they were wrestling with what does it look like now that we are part of God's family? What does it look like for the community of Christ, the church? How do we think differently? How do we live differently? So we've looked at a lot of those topics. If you remember, I've been showing you just a couple of passages that are key principles. What Paul does in this letter is to really give them principles of this is how we do it in the family of God and then applies it to their situation. Well, the Holy Spirit's very wise in doing that because we know those principles, we can apply it to 21st century situations, just like they did. I mean, the times have changed and technology has certainly changed, but human nature hasn't changed very much and our problems, our struggles as we walk out our faith haven't changed very much. What the Corinthians were saying, they realized the gospel was incredibly freeing. And so it appears that one of their sayings was, everything is permissible for me. Not meaning, of course, that I can do anything I want. They understood better than that. But what they meant was, that old dead religion that I had before when I would go to the temple of Zeus and make sacrifices and had to observe the festivals and I went through the motions and, and I don't, don't have to do any of that anymore. I'm saved by grace through faith. Christ did all the work for me to measure up. I no longer have to try to measure up. So you can understand, and hopefully you have felt that sense of freedom in Christ. Well, they were saying that, but Paul says, that is true, but not everything is beneficial. You know, not everything builds up, and we've observed that word, constructive. Uh, here it's constructive, sometimes it's translated build up, but the whole point is, is that, and remember, you've seen this principle applied over and over, is our freedom as Christians, our rights, if you will, we are not our own. We were bought at a price. Our rights and our freedoms are completely subject to God's purposes. So for example, we see that over and over in this letter where Paul would say, what you're doing isn't sinful, but it's not helpful. So let's not do that anymore. I gave you the example that Paul appears to have continued eating kosher. In other words, he continued apparently to follow the Jewish dietary guidelines. Why, did it make him a better Christian? Of course not. Could he have eaten differently? Of course he could. But his point was, even though I'm free to do that, it actually hinders the gospel. He said, every town I go into, I'm gonna to go to the synagogue and talk to Jews. I don't want anything to get in the way of that. 
So I'll just voluntarily not do that. Remember chapter eight, the food sacrifice to idols? Same idea. You can eat whatever you want. But you know, the love for your brother or sister in Christ overrules that. You need to just voluntarily lay down some of your rights. So that's been a big theme in this book so far. Well, in chapter 15, he turns a little to a more doctrinal issue and a crucial doctrinal issue. And there's a problem in the church in Corinth and it has to do with the resurrection. Here's how chapter, we're gonna just walk through chapter 15, but here's how it starts. Now, brothers, I wanna remind you of the gospel, meaning the good news, the story about Jesus Christ, that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. In other words, the story of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and the resurrection, that event is what makes our salvation possible. By this you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. In other words, there's a sense of perseverance. There's a sense of continued faithfulness. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this is probably the best little summary of the gospel message in the Bible. If somebody, I shudder to think what would happen if you asked 100 Christians, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the good news? You get a lot of different answers. This is a great answer. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. You know, Paul, remember, was persecuting the church, and later Jesus gets his attention and calls him to follow him. He said, I was kind of the last. I was, I was actually persecuting the church, and God had mercy on me, and here I am, the least of the apostles. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And also, I just absolutely love that phrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Not really me, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So this idea of the resurrection is a key idea, and I wanna just make two simple points here. One is the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel story. When you read the book of Acts, and this is worth doing, by the way, in your devotional reading, if you're not reading something right now, read the book of Acts and do this. Every time you see a sermon, or in other words, somebody stand up and proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ, pay attention to how often that story is really centered on the resurrection of Christ. And we're gonna talk more about that because that's the problem. Some people apparently in Corinth were denying that Christ, they, they believe in Jesus, they think he's the son of God, but they, they don't think that the resurrection happened. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But one point is the centrality of the resurrection to the story, the gospel story. And then secondly, this idea, I don't know if you've thought about this, but Christianity is rooted in a historical event, an event that has eyewitnesses. It is a supernatural event. I mean, people don't typically raise up from the dead and then appear to people, right? It's supernatural, but it's historical. It's verifiable. And I mean that in the sense that it puts itself out there. It's not a myth. You know, once think about the Greek myths and the Apollo did this and so-and-so did that. And you say, well, how can I know that's true? Well, there's no way that you can know that's true. I mean, there's no way to attest to it, even historically. The resurrection claims to be a historical event. And so our faith is built on something God actually did and actually showed to the world. That is a huge difference between Christianity and other religions, is it is disprovable. If you wanna think about this, most religions are not disprovable because 
I mean, you can't prove it. In other words, I'm not saying you can prove God exists or doesn't exist, that's not my point. My point is simply, it's really difficult to disprove the truth of a religion. Well, you just have to take it on faith. Well, there's no doubt that Christianity requires faith, that's obvious, but the point is, it is something that could be disproved. It's not just made up. You know, it's not somebody saw a vision, wrote it down and said, I hope you believe this. So a couple of things about the resurrection. It's a historical event and it's the center of the gospel story. So he goes on and he says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is happening in Corinth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Here you see the centrality of the resurrection. He's saying, if Christ isn't raised, our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning those who have died as Christians, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So I wanna spend a little time, camp out on this verse a little bit, but I wanna look at three different aspects. First, the obvious question. In those days, why would they say there was no resurrection? And then I wanna talk about now, why do people not believe in the resurrection? Why are there Christians who say there was no resurrection? And then thirdly, I wanna talk about the idea of without the resurrection, then we are still in our sins and this, it's not, Christianity is not a sufficient life philosophy. So first question, why would somebody in Corinth be saying that there was no resurrection? Well, let's go back to uh, the book of Acts. This is the Areopagus in Athens. The apostle Paul was going through Athens and he was preaching the good news. And he went, he was actually called to go to the Areopagus. This is a little hill. We're looking down at it uh, in Athens and you're looking at, at Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And Mars Hill was a place where this council met. You can read about this in the book of Acts. But basically it's where this council met and they came to examine Paul. And they said, we hear you've got this new teaching, new philosophy, we wanna hear it. And we also wanna make sure that it's, there's, it's okay. There's nothing really subversive about it. And so there was a council that was called the Areopagus and it was also a physical place that still exists today. So Paul goes there and he gives a little short sermon. And I want you to see what he has to say because it really exemplifies the way people in that time thought about the idea of resurrection. So here's the whole sermon. I wanna read this because it's really pretty. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm gonna tell you about. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he's connecting with his audience by quoting some of their authors. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of man's design. In the past, God overlooked this kind of ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, change their mind, turn around. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You think about it, that's a nice short little sermon that basically summarizes Genesis to the resurrection of Christ. 
And he says, this is what I'm teaching. I'm teaching you not just about this Jesus, I'm teaching you the meaning of life. This is the point. All these gods you worship are not real, and I wanna tell you what the nature of reality actually is. But listen to what happens. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. Paul left, and a few of them became believers. So why is it that the resurrection of the dead is what puts them off? I mean, of all the things he said there, there are an awful lot of things you could object to but that's the one that they have heartburn with. Well, here's how the ancient world thought about life after death. Many ancient religions believed in life after death, but not the resurrection of your body. Do you see the difference there? For example, and this is one of the questions that we might have is, Christianity doesn't teach that there's just life after death, certainly talks about eternal life, but some of the pagan religions said, yeah, there's some kind of life after death. If you were Greeks, maybe you would go to Hades, kind of a, think of it as a standard definition black and white movie. It's, eh, it's real bland, you know, we're, we're used to much better than that. It was kind of a so-so existence for eternity. Well, that was kind of their idea. Other people had different ideas about what happened in life after death, but what they didn't believe in is that you could die and you could, like Lazarus or like Jesus, you could walk back out and your body is reanimated. In other words, that's the idea of resurrection as opposed to life after death. Does that make sense? So they didn't necessarily have that much heartburn about life after death, but the idea of a resurrection, Jesus died and then three days later he walks out of the tomb and you see him and that's who he is. They thought, no, you get a harp and some wings and go sit on a cloud somewhere in some ethereal place forever. So Christians were not just teaching that there is life after death, meaning that there's something in you, a spirit that lives on. Even the pagans believe that, or some of them believe that. What Paul is teaching, no, there's literally a resurrection and you will have a new body. And that is what they're sneering at because they think that, believe it or not, is supernatural. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Your spirit, yeah, maybe, lives in some ethereal place, yeah, maybe, but people don't get up and walk around after they died, and that's what offended them. If you were in Corinth and you grew up as a pagan and that's what you believed, when you hear the story of Jesus, you're really comfortable with the idea of a soul you're really comfortable with the idea that after this body dies, my soul could go to heaven if I place my trust in Christ. He will uh, take me to heaven, if you will. And so my soul, whatever that is, will live with Christ in heaven. But this idea of a body coming, it's like, well, that's crazy. You know, that's, you know, I can't buy that part of Christianity, but I got all the rest of it. And so what's happening is some of them are denying the idea of a bodily resurrection. Paul takes that really seriously. He says, no, that's, that's a real problem. I mean, that's a foundational idea, but you can understand why they might've had trouble with it. They, they're fine with life after death, but not with a bodily resurrection. That's why they were having trouble with it then, at that time. Today, people have trouble with this for a different reason. Everybody's pretty much, I'm talking about Christians who deny the idea of a bodily resurrection. They would agree with the Corinthians that I have a soul, it'll go to heaven. Yeah, that's, I do believe in life after death. If not, why be a Christian? You should play golf on Sunday morning. You should not go to church. You know, if you, if you don't even believe in eternity, it's like, come on, go play golf. Do something else with your Sundays, right? So you might say, well, I do believe in that, but I don't believe in, the, in this bodily resurrection. Why? I mean, seriously. I, that's always been hard for me to understand. If you believe that God created the world out of nothing and you're gonna balk at the resurrection or the virgin birth or something else, it's like you're kind of splitting this a little too finely. I mean, you really ought to have heartburn with God creating the universe if you're gonna have heartburn with something, right? But if you're a Christian, you believe that, sometimes we wanna harmonize our faith with the science of our day. And when I say that, I don't really mean science. What I mean is materialism. Materialism is the predominant philosophy of all your friends that aren't Christians and some of your friends that are. And materialism is a way of thinking. Remember, 
the way you were brought up thinking, and that is the only things that are real are things that are physical or things that have a cause and effect. I mean, we only believe atoms are real because we can test them and see the effects, but anything beyond that is not natural. In other words, the only things that exist are what's in the natural world. That's called materialism. Material things are real, other things are not real. And so we want to harmonize it. As Christians, we don't believe in materialism. We think, well, there's a God. He's beyond this natural world. Jesus Christ did miracles. Those were supernatural. They were beyond the natural world. But in attempting to harmonize it, what you tend to see is sometimes Christians will want to diminish or dilute the more offensive doctrines. Healing somebody's not that offensive a doctrine. Virgin birth, resurrection, those things will make your scientific friends laugh at you. And so what you'll see, same thing the Corinthians were doing, just for different reasons, is the sort of, okay, well, I can do all the Christian stuff, but I mean, you don't really have to believe in that resurrection thing. And Paul says, no, actually, you really do. Because if you don't have the resurrection, what you have is the cross. And the thing about the cross is it's essential to the story, Christ bearing our sins on the cross, but it's not sufficient. N.T. Wright says it probably as well as anybody I've read. He said, it is only the resurrection that makes the crucifixion appear anything other than a horrible end for another failed Messiah. Think about it. Christ goes on the cross, says I'm carrying the sins of the world, he dies, and now you believe I'm forgiven because he bore my sins on the cross. That's true, he did bear your sins on the cross. The problem is if the story ends there, he didn't solve your problem. In other words, it's just another guy who said he was a Messiah and said he died for you and me. Why do you believe that? Why would you believe the promise that you will live forever if he can't live forever? And that's what N.T. Wright's saying, and that's what Paul is saying, is the resurrection is crucial to this. You can't leave that out. A, a good news story that only has the cross is really a failure looking for something to do. Bruce Shelley, who's a church historian, said it this way. This is really well said. He said, Christianity is the only religion that has as its central event the humiliation of its God. And that's true. It's true historically, but it's also true that the crucifixion was humiliating. That is a central event. He was crucified like a common criminal. Nobody's God has that kind of story. That's horrible PR, right? But the resurrection, as we're gonna see, Paul says, here's why it's so important. That's the conquest. It was humiliating to die on a cross at the hands of men that God himself would put himself in that place and he thereby conquered sin and death. So in ancient times, they just had problems with the physical resurrection, not the life after death. In modern times, it's the same thing. It's just slightly different reasons for doing so. But Paul's gonna say, none of those reasons are sufficient. Because, and here's the thing, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. The other lesson out of this, first is the idea of why they thought that, why we might think that, but the, the big lesson here to me is, it is a warning about teaching Christianity as a good way to live. And you see this trend in Christianity today. It's not untrue in many ways that it is good to be Christ. You'll be a good citizen if you're a Christ follower. You're gonna be more compassionate. You're gonna be more forgiving. The fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in you as the Spirit does his work in you. That's true. What's not true is that you can live your best life now. I mean, somebody should tell the Apostle Paul that. In other words, that's not the point of Christianity. The idea of a cross where Jesus took my sins away and now I get to go live my best life or this is the best way to live by believing in Christ, you're really taking the resurrection out of the story. Resurrection is the whole new life. It's the new calling. Paul did what he did, suffered in every town he went into, 
He was faithful even though he was beaten and left for dead. And you know the story of the Apostle Paul, how difficult his life was. And yet he writes some of the most beautiful passages about joy and contentment, whatever his circumstances. How can he say that? He can say that because of the resurrection. The idea that not even sin and death can defeat him. And so what he's saying is, if Christ is not raised, then you shouldn't be a Christian because Christianity without the resurrection is just a philosophy of life. Sometimes we wanna reach people and the resurrection is offensive to them. So we wanna say, well, I know, but look at the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, seriously, you gotta like this guy, Jesus. And they go, yeah, kinda of like Gandhi. I like your Jesus a lot. Don't like your Christians, but I like your Jesus a lot. And people say, yeah, I like him. He's a really nice guy. I love this guy. I go, well, you should follow him because you know what? It's just the best way to live. That's called moralism. And it misses the mark of the gospel a little. It's not bad to say, listen, this is the right way to live. This is a way to live in harmony with God. It will help you to live in harmony with your fellow man. But it's not the point of the gospel. And that's what he's being so, in very strong language saying, he says, your faith is futile. It's in vain without the resurrection. So the resurrection is key to this. Well, why is the resurrection key to this? He's gonna go on and talk about that. He said, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, as in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When he has done this, I'm skipping to verse 28, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, and so that God may be all in all. So what's he really saying? He says, I want you to understand the resurrection is more than just this event, more than just the consummation of your sins being born on the cross and Christ guaranteeing that you can have eternal life because he himself is raised from the dead. He actually says the resurrection is the ending of this cosmic story. It's the undoing of the fall of humanity. In Adam, all died. And that's true. If you think about it, there's no death intended in the Garden of Eden. But when humanity sins, and in this case, our forefather, the original uh, father of all of humanity here physically, Adam, as a representative, if you will, of us, when he sinned, death enters the world. From that time on, decay begins to happen. Paul in Romans 8 says, the whole universe starts to decay. It wasn't supposed to be like this. In other words, everything fell, everything is corrupted, everything is bent towards sin at this point. And so death enters the world. And so now the only way out of this life for everybody physically is through the door of death. And that's not what God intended. And so death enters the world and death begins to have a claim on us. And the power of death is sin. And that's what Paul's gonna say. This is why there is a gospel. This is what we need saving from, is our rebellion against God means that we die and we die permanently. And so Christ comes to give life to all through his faithful event. So theologically, what he's saying is there's more going on with resurrection than you think. It's undoing the fall. He didn't say there's more going on with the crucifixion than you think, that's probably also true, but he's focusing on the resurrection. Without that, the fall is not undone. In other words, there's no life. There's still death, but there's no life. Death hasn't been defeated at that point, okay? So, second thing, and this is a key idea. If that is true, then your new life begins now. I want you to look at a couple of other passages because we tend to think like this. It's not necessarily wrong, it's just not sufficient. We tend to think, okay, we're gonna muddle through this life in this body with this difficulties. The Holy Spirit is gonna be making us holy, sanctifying us, we're going to die, and then, oh, hallelujah, the good life begins. Not exactly 
how it's envisioned. Look at this, Romans 6, what should we say? Could we go on sinning so grace may increase? By no means, we died to sin. That's interesting language, isn't it? We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Don't you realize that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, once again, the resurrection, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That happened when you were baptized. He's not talking about the future. Remember when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus back in John chapter three, he said, you must be born again. He doesn't mean, well, when you die, you'll be born again. He said, no, you need to start a new life right now. That's the beauty of the resurrection and that's the beauty of the bodily uh, resurrection is we begin our new life now. Peter says it this way, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, a hope meaning we have not yet fully attained it. He's talking about now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a really important idea. And it's the idea that resurrection life begins now, not then. Is it perfected now? Of course it's not perfected now. Do you have an uncorruptible body? He's gonna talk about that in a minute, not yet, but you are beginning your walk of new life now. We live in a resurrected life at this point. That's a really different way of thinking about your Christian life. Here's a great way to be unhappy as a Christian. And as to say, I've given my life to Christ. I got my card that says, you may get into heaven. I put it in my wallet, stuck it in my pocket and go, okay, now when I die, I'm good. Okay, let's get through the rest of this. And sometimes we live our Christian life like that, don't we? It's like, well, here we are just doing the best we can and life's throwing us a lot of curveballs, and we keep striking out, but I just know I've got that Sam's card. You know, I can get into Costco whenever I want to. I got my card, I'm getting into heaven. That's not the way the New Testament talks about it. It says, no, when you were buried with Christ in baptism, you were raised to walk in a new life. Resurrection life begins now. That's also why, and this is gonna make sense, why the community of believers why God makes a church. I mean, seriously, if you think about it, why bother having a church? If you wanted to, God could say, I'm just gonna deal with each of you on an individual case basis. You're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Go on about your business. By the way, you guys don't need to have a lot of meetings. You know, I know you're busy, so you don't need to come to church. Instead, what does he do? He builds a church, a community of believers. Why? Because what you are doing right now is beginning the new life I don't want to disillusion you. This is what heaven is going to be like. And some of you are like, oh my goodness. No, it's going to be better than this. There won't be so many cranky people around. But my point is, you're beginning to model what heaven looks like now because you're living the resurrection life. So this idea of resurrection is important theologically, but it's also important practically. It's having that mindset that, you know what, I'm a new person. I'm not perfected but I'm brand new. You're brand new in several ways. One is, I used to be going this way. As Ephesians 2 said, you were dead when you used to walk in the way of this world. But now, I'm following Christ. I'm different, I'm going a different direction. And of course, you've seen in your Christian life where Romans 12, 2, your mind is being changed. I value different things than I used to. The Holy Spirit is working in me, I'm more patient, I'm more compassionate, I'm more forgiving. It's not a race, it's a road. And so you realize, wait a minute, there are changes happening to me now. Why? Why would that be necessary? It's because you're already living the resurrection life. And the end point of that resurrection life is continuing it in heaven. That's a really important way to think about your Christianity and to think about your Christian life is to think about you're living it now. You're not just waiting for it later. Remember Ephesians, I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but I want you to realize that these things are all connected. This is the idea in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this, when you believed, when you placed your trust in Christ, when you trusted, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a down payment guaranteeing what God has promised. 
So what has he promised? That you will live forever with him, that you are reconciled to him. And so he takes the Holy Spirit, places the Spirit inside us, and the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? Well, Romans 8, 28 says, you were predestined. You have a destiny now. You have, there's a plan for your life. What is it? You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in our mind, in our emotions, and in our actions. And so the Spirit is working on us. In other words, you're brand new. You're not a fixer-upper. You know, this isn't a re, you are not a remodel job, right? Like, oh, well, I got this old broken down Terry and I'll make him a Christian now. Well, you know, he's a little better than he was before. You are a brand new person. Jesus didn't come to make better people. He came to make brand new people. And that's what you are. And you should think about yourself in that way. When you look in the mirror in the morning to shave, men, I assume. Anyway, you, know, you look in the mirror and you're shaving in the morning. You need to say that to yourself. I am a new creation in Christ. Now go walk in a manner worthy of my calling. In other words, let's just go live consistently with who God has now made me to be. You will not believe how big a difference that will make in your conduct and in your life and in your attitude is you're already getting part of your inheritance. Okay, that's getting preachy. Let's get back to the text. Now, if there is no resurrection, he's gonna argue and he say, if that's not enough reason for you, think of this. If there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? I'll save you the trouble of asking the question about that. We'll come back to it. If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? You see, the cross is not sufficient. That's only half of the story. Paul says, I wouldn't be doing what I was doing if Jesus weren't raised from the dead. Otherwise, he'd be another of many people that said they were the Messiah, but really couldn't prove it. Jesus proved it. I die every day, I mean that, just as surely as I glory over you. I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons. What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, don't bother going to church. Get all the fun you can out of the world. And if you pick up a newspaper, you'll realize a lot of people are living that way. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That's a quotation from a guy named Menander. He lived around 300 BC and he was a famous Greek, actually wrote a lot of uh, comedies, but he was also a poet. And so he quotes that and he, he's still talking to these uh, pagan Corinthians and he said, that's true. You know, your own poet said the truth. So come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. That's powerful. What's he saying about this denial of the resurrection? That's an essential doctrine of the faith. Denying the resurrection of Christ, he said, stop sinning. Or there, for there's some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to shame you. You should know better than this. So what's he saying? Baptism for the dead, this is a sideline. First of all, no one actually knows what that means. You can read a lot of commentaries. There are a lot of trees that gave their lives. So a lot of commentaries could be written about this. No one actually knows. It's what's called enigmatic. It's a, enigmatic, like my wife, she's enigmatic, meaning I cannot understand, it is not understandable to me, okay? This is not understandable. In other words, we don't know what it means. So what do people think it means? Well, all kinds of interesting ideas. One would be that uh, people who became Christians but weren't baptized before they died, that some people were baptized for them. Don't know, seems kind of thin to me. Another uh, reason would be the idea of uh, baptism for the rest of your family, even though they're not believers, so that they too, by association with you, would be Christians. Not a great idea. I'll tell you what, the only people today who actually practice this, to my knowledge, is the Latter-day Saints, so the Mormons. Mormon doctrine, in the main Mormon, I mean, there are a lot of sects of, of Mormonism, but main Mormon sect does believe in baptism for the dead. And here's what they believe about this. They believe that you can be baptized in a certain place with the right rites, etc. but you can be baptized for ancestors who have died who didn't die as Mormons, Christians slash Mormons, okay, from their point of view. And they can then later 
accept it or reject it. In other words, it doesn't automatically get them into the kingdom of God. But for example, Mormons believe that you have to be baptized to get into the kingdom of God. So your great uncle, you need to be baptized now and then your great uncle in the afterlife can accept that baptism so that you can get in. It's kind of like a technicality, kind of like an immigration thing, right? So Mormons do accept it and practice it. There's so many other things in the New Testament that would make that not true, that that's very unlikely, uh, it's impossible in my view, that this is what it can mean. But you'll hear a lot of ideas, but nobody actually knows what that means. But whatever it was, it meant something to the Corinthians, and he's using it as an argument that it makes no sense to say there's no resurrection. It's not consistent with Christianity at all. This idea and that he leads here is bad company corrupts good character, really an interesting idea. And that is addressing more of their root problem. And that is the Corinthians are still holding on to some of their old worldview. So are we. I mean, we, we prune ourselves of old bad ideas, old bad behaviors. It's a pruning process like Jesus talks about so that we can really bear fruit. Well, this was an idea that was still hanging on to them. But his point is you keep hanging around people that think that way and it's going to affect you. And the lesson for you and me is this, and we've talked about this in detail, so I'll just give you the shorthand. Who is influencing whom? If you think about your life as a Christian, you wanna be around people that aren't Christian and you wanna be a witness to them. You wanna tell them, well, let me tell you who Jesus Christ is or maybe you just wanna tell your story. Let me tell you, I used to be this, I encountered Jesus Christ and now I'm that. I mean, that's a powerful testimony, if you will. It's like, here's what Jesus is to me. Everyone has that story to tell. So you wanna be around people that aren't Christian so that you can share that good news with them. The problem is, if you aren't careful, you can be infected just as easily as they can. And what he's saying here in this context is, some of you Corinthians are still hanging around with people and they're rubbing off on you more than you're rubbing off on them. And that's where we too need to be aware. And that's another reason I think God put us in community. We can encourage one another, we can hold each other accountable. A lot of passages in the New Testament talking about, catching each other in sin and pulling us back on track. You would do that for your brother or sister. We do that for each other. But what they were doing is the world was influencing them more than they were influencing the world. How does that happen to us? One great example is this, what do you read? If you spend more time reading uh, social media, newspaper, listening to television, than you do reading and thinking about the word of God and God's way of looking at things, you're probably gonna be pulled and influenced in that direction. In other words, what you put into your head is going to affect you. And particularly, if we get out of the habit of reading the word, of praying, of gathering together, we do these things for very practical reasons, and that is so that we can protect ourselves from being assimilated into the world. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is, you guys are being assimilated into the world, so stop sinning, come back, get into the word, okay? Same message for us. So he goes on and he says this, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? What, what kind of body will they come? Well, how foolish. Actually, this is really insulting. Uh, NIV cleans it up a little bit, but the word there is, Basically, you fool, you know, you idiot. I mean, he's just, he's really revved up, you can tell. You know, we talked about how Paul's dictating these letters and he's really revved up. He said, you idiots, Why, what are you thinking? Do you think that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies? When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be just a seed, maybe wheat or something, but God gives it a body as he's determined. So let me skip through this and say, here's his argument. You sow a seed, but you reap a plant. You know, you sow an apple seed and you get an apple and they don't look the same and yet there's this connection. And so he's gonna say in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, this body. It is raised imperishable, eternal. 
It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. But you notice the thing here is, it is raised. There's a connection. There's a connection between this body and a new body in the sense that this is a seed. I'll give you, get you the point of that in just a minute. But basically he said, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so what he's saying is, is that you have a spiritual body, meaning you will be like Christ. We don't yet know what we will be, but we will be like him, the Bible says. We'll be like Christ. So this body is like a seed that gets planted, and it has to die. And then God gives a glorious fruit, if you will, an imperishable body. And that's, the, that's what he's trying to say. There's a sense in which this body is animated by natural things. In other words, this is why Christians are such good scientists, is genetics, etc. cetera. You, you study these bodies and you realize they are products of this universe. They work according to rules. Some of the best medical experts in the world are Christians. Why? Because we're like, well, let's go study what God has made. But we understand this body is animated by the spirit of this world, meaning it operates by the principles of this world. It decays, it dies, etc. But there's also a spiritual body that operates according to the rules of the spiritual realm. It is eternal, it is imperishable. And so Paul's simply saying there will be a bodily resurrection. And then finally, he says, so I declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're going to die. This is not the body that you will have. You will have an imperishable body nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, new body, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This is the essence of the resurrection. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin. That's a problem you can't fix on your own. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's talk about a side issue. Well, actually, take your question first, but I suspect I know what one of these will be. Okay, so given the bodily resurrection, what are your thoughts on cremation? Good point. Bodily resurrection, thoughts on cremation. By the way, this, uh, I don't have the stats handy, but just trust me with this. I'm trying to remember the study. But more people in America are being cremated than ever before. And I don't really know what's driving that. This article had several ideas, but, and so this question, believe it or not, maybe once every two weeks, you, I'll get this question, and it's a good question. So the question is this, is it okay to cremate this body? Will that in some way, is that, uh, is that basically being disobedient to God? It's not, is it gonna keep God from, from basically resurrecting me? No. Okay, let me just pause there for a second. No, obviously not. There are people that die in wars. There are people that get blown up. There are things that happen where this physical body is no longer around. And there's nothing in the New Testament that says, oh, well, if you don't have your body as a trade-in, I can't help you. You know, it's like you didn't keep your receipt. You know, I need to see the receipt for that body I gave you or you don't get a new one. Well, I'm being facetious, but the point is, God's power is great enough to overcome that. The real question is probably, am I being disobedient? Am I dishonoring God by somehow dishonoring this body by cremating it? My thinking, and I'm giving you my opinion based on my study, is that no, you are not. In other words, this is not the body that you will be in. This is a body that's planted. It's a seed, if you will. This is the vehicle that carries us through this life, and God will raise us up and give us a new body, as it says here. So let me give you the short version. I do not think there's anything uh, that's disobedient about cremation. God does not need this body anymore once you have been sown, if you will. 
and then if you belong to Christ, you will get a new body. It's not a rehab, it's brand new body. So short version, it's my opinion, no. There's no problem with cremation. It's not being disobedient to God. I have several questions about baptism. Okay, Um, that's interesting twist. How important is it to be baptized and is it necessary to be baptized in order to go to heaven? Okay, how important is it to be baptized and is it necessary to be baptized to go to heaven? If you're a Mormon, yes. Uh, But for those of you that are not Mormons here, Let me tell you what my reading of the scripture is. This is also what this church uh, believes. There are are some Christians that believe a little differently on this. We do not believe that being baptized is essential for you to go to heaven. In other words, it's not a work. I guess we can get really theological, but let me just keep it simple. It's not a work that you have to do, a box that you have to check to be able to go to heaven. You're saved by grace through faith. But, or I actually should say, and, you should be baptized. Why? because if I don't, I won't go to heaven. No, that's not the way I read the New Testament. But I do know this in Matthew 28, what did Jesus say to his disciples, meaning to us as well? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all the commands I've given you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm really shorthanding this because there's a lot of theological dispute about the idea in general of what baptism is, but to make it really simple, I do not believe the New Testament teaches you have to be baptized to go to heaven, but here's my point. You need to be baptized. Is that fair enough? Both of those statements are true. You don't need to be baptized to get into heaven, but you need to be baptized because Jesus said we need to do it. I'll tell you this story. I was, well, okay, I became a Christian in a church of Christ, so this is a moot point. You're gonna get baptized right then with your clothes on if necessary. I mean, you, you aren't getting out of that church till you're baptized because they do believe that if you went home without being baptized and say you died, you wouldn't go to heaven. So they do hold that belief, or at least they did then. Maybe not all people in Church of Christ believe that now. They believed that issue. But I've known people, so it wasn't an issue for me, but I've had friends who became Christians. They placed their trust in Jesus Christ and then they didn't wanna get baptized. And I always would have this discussion. I'd say, why do you not wanna be baptized? I mean, your hair's not that good looking. It's just one day, you know, so yeah, sure. You're gonna go back into the service, your hair's gonna be wet. But seriously, it's sort of like, I don't know if I wanna get up in front of everybody and, and be dunked in the water. And I'm like, seriously, do you not realize that, you know, that what are you saying here? Do you pretend for a minute you're talking to Jesus? I have these little thought experiments. You get to heaven and Jesus said, yeah, you can come in. Baptism wasn't essential, but you know, I did tell you to do that. Yeah. Why did you not do it? It was very inconvenient. I mean, you have no idea how inconvenient this would be, Jesus. Okay. That argument doesn't sound good even here, does it? It's going to sound even worse at the gates of heaven. So yes, you need to be baptized because Jesus said, we should be baptized. It is a sign of the death and the resurrection. Okay, this goes back to the first part of this chapter, but what are your thoughts on why Jesus did not appear at the temple when he was resurrected? Why did Jesus not appear at the temple when he was resurrected? I I don't know, actually never thought about why he should or would have appeared at the temple. I do think maybe this is the question you're asking. If not, I'm sorry, but it's worth answering anyway. Why didn't Jesus appear to even more people? I mean, that's a lot of people, right? And Paul's saying, some of these people are still alive. If you don't believe me, just go ask them. They saw him, many of them are still alive. So that's pretty powerful. Some people would say, well, why didn't he just appear in the temple to the chief priests and everybody would have gone, oh my goodness, we were so wrong. And that somehow would have changed the course of history. If people could have just seen him, then, well, sure, then all the Jews would have been that, right? We don't need that. God could have just done an unbelievable miracle. Same question. Why doesn't God just do a miracle right now? Just a big miracle right now. Seven billion people on earth would go, oh my goodness, that Christian thing is right. I guess I'm going to become a Christian because it doesn't work that way. Remember the passage where Jesus is talking to, uh, this is the story of Lazarus and Jesus, but he basically says this, if you don't believe the scriptures, you won't even believe it if someone is raised from the dead. In other words, we think, oh, if you would only show me an incredible miracle, then I'm your guy. And Jesus says, no, you're really not. He said, trust me. Remember those Israelites coming out of Egypt? Do you know what I showed those people? And do you know how quickly they left me? That's our nature. 
even a great miracle is not a basis for faith. So I don't know if that's why he didn't uh, show up at the temple, but I think that Jesus, those were signs. Those were never gonna be, the foundation of our faith is not some miracle we might see. If it is, it'll be transient. The big question here that you probably ask is what happens after you die? Do you go straight to heaven or do you go into a holding cell? I'm not talking about purgatory here. This is Protestant church. So what happens to you after you die? Well, there are two views, two big views on that. One view is you go immediately to heaven. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You go straight to heaven as soon as you die. And I presume some people believe you would also then go straight to hell. Others think, no, you wait because we're gonna sentence all of you guys going to hell at once. But at least this idea that you go straight to heaven, that's very comforting to a lot of people. The other view, and that view has some scriptural support. In other words, they're kind of suggestions that, that talk about maybe that's true. You know, maybe that's what's happened. The other view is, is that you sleep. This is probably a little more traditional. You notice here he talks about in the last, uh, oh, here he is. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. This is sounding like the second coming. This is sounding like in the future, which means that we've been sleeping until the second coming of Christ. So those are the two views. You sleep till the second coming of Christ. We're all raised together for judgment, for glory, and, or you go straight to heaven if you are saved. And I don't think the scripture's definitive about this, but here's the basic difference. The question is not really a big, you know, hill to die on kind of question. The question is really, is the next thing that happens to you after death that you immediately appear in heaven? Or if you go to sleep, the question is, do you subsequently appear in heaven? Because from your, now you're in my position, this sounds like an interesting question. From the person who died's position, this is a moot point. Whether it happens immediately or subsequently. And what I mean by subsequently is, it is the next thing that you know. Does that make sense? You go to sleep at night, I'm sure you've heard this example. You go to sleep at night and the next thing you know is when you wake up. You have no recollection of the eight hours, four hour, whatever, however time period you slept, you have no recollection of that. Well, did you immediately wake up? No, you did not immediately wake up. You slept for eight hours, but you subsequently woke up. And what I mean by that is the next thing you know is waking up. Does that make sense? So from the point of view of somebody that's died, this is a moot point. It makes no difference at all. For us, it can be comforting to think that our loved ones are immediately uh, in heaven with God, as opposed to sleeping until the second coming when we will all be raised together. So those are two legitimate points of view, but at the end of the day, they don't, make a, they don't really make any significant difference to us, unless they do to you, in which case email me and tell me why, because I'm not sure why that would be a big deal to us. But there are two different points of view on that. So last thing is if resurrection life has started now, and that's a big piece of what Paul is saying, then here's the really important lesson. You cannot separate your future hope from your present responsibility. Let me say that again, because I want you to think about your Christian life this way. You can't separate your future hope from your present responsibility. Have you ever wondered why in the New Testament? The New Testament is not a do this, don't do that. But there are definitely things in the New Testament that say, we don't do that in the kingdom of God. We don't do sexual immorality. Uh, we don't do greed. We don't do gossip. Well, we don't do backbiting. You know, envy, no, that's, that's not what we do. Holy Spirit's gonna prune those things out of our life. Have you ever wondered why? It's like, why can't I just live however? And then when I get to heaven, boom, I'll just be perfect. In fact, some of us kind of have that idea. Well, the point is this, if you're living the resurrection life now, you can't separate your future hope from your present responsibility. In other words, you're not just called to somehow endure and then you're raised from the dead and go to heaven and all of a sudden you're a really nice person. In other words, he says, no, resurrection life starts now. The joy of Christ starts now. The peace of Christ starts now. That's good news, isn't it? I don't wanna to have to suffer through all the difficulties of life and say, well, at least I've got heaven to look forward to. No, 
think about what you know from Philippians 4. You know, don't be anxious, but I'm paraphrasing. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, you know, through prayer, petition, make your request known to God and what will happen? And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, his peace starts now. His love for you is present now. Your joy starts now. You're living the resurrection life now. So let's begin walking in the way that Christ walked now. We can't separate that hope from our, our present responsibility. Begin to live like you're in heaven, if you will. That's what he's saying about it. And he goes to great lengths. You think about it, this is 58 verses as we've divided the verses, but it's a very long thing about this topic. Why? Because it's essential. It's one of those essential Christian beliefs. You don't have a gospel without a resurrection. And he's even gonna argue, you can't even live your Christian life unless you realize you're living a resurrected life. Start now. You're being shaped now into the image of Christ. Well, he's gonna finish this off with really interesting question that I bet every one of you have asked before. And that's this, how do you know when life challenges are opportunities from God or warnings from God? When you encounter difficulties or resistance in life, is that a sign from God that, I've always struggled with this, like seriously, you hear these great stories, you know, like so-and-so encountered this difficulty and they persevered and they encountered this difficulty and they persevered and they finally achieved it. Thomas Edison went through a thousand failures before he found the light bulb. And I always suspected they weren't telling me about the 500 other guys who didn't find the light bulb. All right, they went through a thousand failures and well, they failed. So how do I know when these hurdles are opportunities to be persevered through and when are they a sign from God that says, stop? Well, we'll talk about that next week because Paul's gonna talk about it in chapter 16. So I'll see you next time.